3, 4. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats is a songwriter and novelist. But unlike novels, he tries to keep it simple when writing songs. A song is a single fish swimming toward the camera lens so you get a good look at him before he darts out of view when the last simple splash happens. The Mountain Goats join us this week for an interview and performance. Plus, we review the new albums from Slater Kinney and The Regrets. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we have an interview and a performance from the Mountain Goats recorded live here in Chicago. But first, we've got some new music to review. That's a track from the new Slater Kinney album, The Center Won't Hold. The name of the track is The Future Is Here. Uh, Slater Kinney, a band that formed in uh, Olympia, Washington in 1994, made seven acclaimed studio albums between 94 and 2005, then went on hiatus. Then they reunited a few years later and put out No Cities to Love in 2015. The new album is now out, and the big news is that they are collaborating with St. Vincent, a.k.a. Annie Clark, who's producing the album. And then, soon after the completion of the record, drummer Janet Weiss quit the band. She said, After intense deliberation and with heavy sadness, I've decided to leave Slater Kinney. The band is heading in a new direction, and it is time for me to move on. We're going to explore what that new direction is in a minute. Let's play a track from the new album. It's called The Center Won't Hold. It's the title track on Sound Opinions. That is the title track of the ninth album by Slater Kinney, The Center Won't Hold, from the Joan Didion quote, of course, Greg. The center isn't holding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. We have seen Slater Kinney mess around with, quote-unquote, innovative experimental productions before, notably with The Woods in 2005, produced by Flaming Lips, 
uh, recording Svengali David Fridman. That was not as big a departure as the center wound hold. I don't know what the trio is doing here. We have industrial noise. We have really super cheesy 80s synth pop. I really hate the songs Love and Bad Dance. We've got almost show tunes from the Breck Wild variety. Uh, the future is here and broken. You know, it is it is tempting for us to look in from the outside about why Janet Weiss left. I would agree with you. She is one of the best drummers in rock, has been for the last two plus decades. There's not much for her to do here. When a band comes back after a long period of inactivity, uh, a reunion, if you will, do they have something new to say? Well, Slater Kinney has something new to say. It's just pretty bad what they are saying. Well, Jim, uh, I'm a much bigger Slater Kinney fan than you are. I don't think there's any argument we're going to have about that. I uh, think the band with Janet Weiss as the drummer has made uh, a series of really amazing records. Um, I think No Cities to Love was a very strong comeback in 2015. However, The Center Won't Hold, Janet Weiss is on that record, but she's really not. I just am scratching my head as to what's going on here. I respect St. Vincent as an artist and as a producer. I think Slater Kinney is one of the great rock bands of the last two decades. I think the combination of the two uh, has produced a very lackluster album. But I, I think the key to this band was always this uh, sense that you were in the middle of this triangle. You had a great drummer in Janet Weiss, mm -hmm. two singers in Carrie Brownstein and Corn Tucker on guitar, and there was an, a push and pull, a jousting, as if they were fighting for space. I think what we get here is Carrie songs and there's Corn songs. What made the band so exciting to me was the, the push and pull between those two uh, voices and those two sensibilities. And I'm not getting any of that sense of tension here. This record is a real disappointment for me. Won't you come a little closer? Closer, closer. I've got something to show you. Look at my friend in California. She really likes the freckles on my face. Won't you come and hold my hand now? I think that you might wanna. Do you ever listen to Madonna? Yeah, I really like the freckle on her face. That is a little bit of California Friends, the first proper song on the second album by The Regrets. How do you love? With the question mark, Greg. Last time on their debut in 2017, they had not a question mark, but an exclamation point. Feel your feelings, fool. It was one of my favorite albums of that year. At that point, I believe that the band leader, singer-songwriter Lydia Knight, was 16 <laughs> when she signs to Warner Brothers Records. She had met some of her bandmates in the School of Rock program in L.A., and uh, it, it was a wonderful, invigorating explosion of garage pop punk with as much of a debt to the Riot Girls of the 90s as to the doo-wop-laden uh, girl groups of the 50s and 60s. This is a second album. There have been some lineup changes since the first record. There's a new rhythm section, a new drummer and bassist. 
Lydia Knight is still only going to be 19 in October. What does it sound like? Let's play a track and we'll come back and give our opinion. This is Pumpkin by The Regrets from How Do You Love on Sound Opinions. That's Pumpkin from The Regrets. The new album is How Do You Love. You know, I'm going to quote uh, Foreigner's Lou Graham here, Jim. I, uh, I just feel like I need to at this point. I want to know what love is. Um, <laughs> I, and, and The Regrets respond, how do you love? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we have what, what, you know, love. I mean, talk about a, a huge topic. But Lydia is diving in head first. It's a 15-song cycle about what seems to be about a year-long relationship, the first serious, intense relationship that she had. There's a detail in her songwriting, even though these are sort of, you would think, buoyant pop punk songs, you know, those little details, the, the dimple that she talks about in California Friends, that dirty yes. sweater yes, I in love I that. Dare You, that the series yeah. of movie she loves references Madonna's in, freckle. in yeah. Fog. Yeah, I mean, these are kind of, you know, just little touches, little imagistic touches that really uh, flesh out her songwriting. You know, this is a, uh, she, she flushes out this relationship. It's not particularly remarkable. I mean, a lot of people go through this. That and, and leads to the universality of it. But the song that really kind of, tipped me over on this record was um, was the song The Game. That's where she pulls the lens back wider and sees this relationship for what it, what it is in a wider context. We're playing a game here. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're really talking about is a young woman losing her sense of innocence about the world and what a relationship could be. You said you didn't care. So you go from this kind of very, you know, okay, it's a, uh, you could call it a puppy love relationship, a couple of teenagers falling in love, and then she pulls it back and there's this adult perspective at the end of uh, the record that really wins me over. And as usual, you know, the encyclopedic range of pop punk hooks, you know, everything from Joan Jett to I hear a little bit of the strokes in there. Sure. You know, she drops some references to Joni Mitchell and Patsy Cline. Uh, she's a very savvy pop songwriter. I, I love this record. Uh, the reason I chose Pumpkin to play on the way in, well, there are two. It is the turning point of the record. It starts out head over heels, googly-eyed, puppy love, and then things start to go wrong. Uh, by the end, she's telling us, uh, it's wake-up time, get out of my mind, to this uh, this uh, crush of hers. And it does 
progress through this story with a million great lines along the way. I used to think that Romeo was full of it, and the notebook <laughs> was just my favorite chick flick. She's funny. She's wickedly funny, sarcastic. She has an amazing amount of insight for a young woman not yet 19. And those hooks are irresistible, Greg. I love this album, and I love the last one. It is wonderful to see them progressing and growing up. As always, we want to know what you think. Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800. After a break, we're joined by the Mountain Goats. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Send out scouts by day. Dole out mercenary pay for restless young subordinates. It never hurts to give thanks to the local gods. You never know who might be hungry. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a little bit of Younger from the Mountain Goats' latest album, In League with Dragons, their 17th studio effort. Of course, that doesn't count the EPs, the seven-inch singles, the cassettes. This is a prolific band, has been, especially all through the 90s, when the group was essentially just John Darnielle recording himself on a boombox. The best ever death metal band out of Denton will in time both outpace and outlive you. Satan. Yeah, Jim, this band is really hard to figure out for somebody who's coming to them a little late. You look at all the releases and you go, man, how do I deal with all of this? Uh, not to mention the fact that they've got an incredibly informed, very rabid fan base. Now, the band really hit its stride in the past few years, growing from that solo project into a real collaboration with bassist Peter Hughes, multi-instrumentalist Matt Douglas, and drummer John Worcester, uh, fleshing out John Darnielle's songs. Jim, now you recommended one of their songs this year to a rock doctor's patient recently. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. I was struck by that life-affirming chorus and how it evoked empathy for an underdog in a very high-pressure situation. We recently had the whole band perform for us live at Talia Hall in Chicago, and we spoke with the two Johns. Uh, John Darnielle did most of the talking, and drummer John Worcester also of Super Chunk, piped up occasionally. I think he's the uh, most often appearing Sound Opinions guest ever. <laughs> when true. we took the stage, uh, I couldn't help but notice the visual representation of this fighting underdog behind us on this giant backdrop hanging behind the stage. We should say, though, we're sitting in front of uh, a banner, a huge wall-sized banner of uh, a possum with a sword. Yes. <laughs> okay. The banner is an interesting story because John has been, uh, I don't like to use the word agitating, but I will say agitating for a backdrop for years, literally yeah. years. But this is the Mountain Goats, the first show that I played in Chicago at the Empty Bottle in 93, summer of 93, wow. I think. I ate it bite, right? Yeah. I drank about seven cups of coffee. I got up. I walked in the clothes I'd been wearing all day into the next room. I sat down on the stage. I said, hi, we're the Mountain Goats. I played. And it took Peter to convince me to change into different clothes to play. Right. Mm. My whole, <laughs> I'm of a D Boone mentality about, from the Minutemen, of, of, uh, about stuff. And everybody asks, go, well, what if you had, what if we had some lighting? And I, yeah, I guess, I guess. You know, but John really wanted one. And I had to promise myself in my heart when I finally buckled that I would be cool about it and help, yeah. you know, come up with an idea. Mr. Darnielle, though, you have to realize it's a slippery slope 
from that possum with a sword, you're going to be wearing Rick Wakeman capes. See, that's the soon. thing, right? You know, this is that's how they do. Is like then they then they say, oh, can we carry our own lighting rig? And I go, well, that's an there extra butt. But I have to be honest. I kind of love it every time I turn around and look at him. I go, yeah, it's wonderful to it's see. It's pretty great. He's a fine fellow. Here's why that banner features a possum instead of, say, a goat. Here's the Mountain Goats performing a song from their new album, In League with Dragons, live at Talia Hall on Sound Opinions. This is a song sung by a possum walking around at night, explaining what the situation looks like to the possum. It's called Possum by Night. When the house lights all go dark I shuffle on down to the park Spend stars in the winter sky Days of refuge in short supply All you parasites climb aboard All you vagabonds, praise the Lord. When the compost pile grows high, climb to the top if I try. Long-haul truckers still wide awake Guard their pathways for Jesus' sake All you garbage trucks to the curb True sons of the living world Try not to get stuck in the intake van Grow fat and grow old and go blind and be content. All you pack dolls have your set. Let me just find my own way The moon in the tree is my guide Walk with my jaw-hinged mind Once more onto the breach Safe in the spots that I like can't reach
That was Possum by Night by the Mountain Goats, live on Sound Opinions. I got two origin stories I want to run by you. One, In League with Dragons is a record that is very orchestrated. Bring in the Given your modest beginnings in terms of how you got your songs out into the public, that's quite a long path yeah. to where you are now. The story I read about you, uh, when I was five, I wanted to be a conductor. Yeah, that's right. You knew you wanted to be an orchestra conductor at, a, yeah. at age five. I didn't even know what that word meant when I was five, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure most people were like that. What put that idea in your head? So my dad um, had played, uh, he was an English teacher, but he did sidelines in music. He played cello, and one of his gigs when he was living in the Midwest was uh, selling LPs. And the chains of distribution were so different back then. It was literally guys who wanted to get in would talk to some label, and you know, unless it was Columbia or whoever, there are plenty of smaller labels. Sure, buy 200 of these and go sell them to record stores and come out, and then my dad would go in, and he was selling classical sides, and I think maybe some jazz to Midwestern record stores, you know, as a sideline when he was, I think, getting his master's. And so we had all these cool old Toscanini records, you know, these beautiful 50s and early 60s classical things. And the conductor, I mean, if you're five, what don't you have? You have no power, right? No matter, that's the one thing you're conscious of when you're five, is like, I don't get to make any decisions. Like, and the conductor looks like the guy, like he's got a big old shock of white hair, and everybody's looking at him, and if you see the orchestra, when he raises his stick, everybody shuts up. <laughs> and it's a miracle, you know? And then when he drops it, an even bigger miracle happens, right? <laughs> then you learn that he also, the conductor can play the entire score. He can come up to anybody in the orchestra and say, this is how that's played. I am not actually that guy. I did not become that guy. I can't tell John Worcester how to play drums. That would be moronic. You know, but he, he does carry a big stick around all Yeah, day. but I carry the stick. <laughs> you are lauded as uh, one of the great lyricists, songwriters, but specifically lyricists. Thank you. The other origin story I wanted you to address is that for your seventh birthday, you got an old royal typewriter. Big old 36 You royal. wanted a typewriter when you were seven years old. I did. Uh, I had been starting... I was telling sequential stories that what we would now understand as comic books using rubber stamps. But I really enjoyed doing this, and I, and I was really into reading books, and so I asked for a typewriter, and I wrote a story on it the day I got it. It would have been wow. March 16th, 1974, I think. I had to go to a typing class to learn how to type when I was like oh, 16. It was, it was like this. I didn't, <laughs> 30 I didn't, words a minute, you know? Yeah, I didn't learn to type until typing class in Portland in 81. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, a man of many talents, novelist, yeah, Pod I do that now, yeah. Podcaster, former zinester. I keep busy. Right. <laughs> um, I, let me turn it around to the other Mountain Goats, because it, it is a band now, and uh, everybody has something. Of course, Worcester does this comedy thing, right, and plays with other bands. But, uh, you know, Matt Douglas, and multi-instrumentalist, he's a teacher, right? Uh, Peter Hughes, who's been with you longest yeah, Mountain Goat. And he does a lot of uh, automotive journalism. That a people lot don't of really automotive stuff, right? He covered like Daytona last year, I think. For So is it is it like they have to have other interests in order to stay sane? Or everybody who's with you is like super doing a hundred things at a time? Well, I think the deal is that being in an indie rock band does not pay all the bills, <laughs> right? And so everybody... But you have a banner. We do have a banner. And believe me, 
I will be thinking about that banner when we look at the math at the end of the tour. Yeah, there you go. I there will you have go. a good hard think about whether, and you know who's going to have to hear about it? Worst. <laughs> like, yeah. You've got to sell it on eBay when the tour is exactly. over. Look, I mean, look, we've got a, a crowd here at Talia Hall. They're you know, devoted I had, fans. I never think of that because it always seems, this is another thing about us. We didn't really have a merch table until just a few years ago. I would sell a box from the lip of the stage. I would bring some, but I had to be talked into that. I found that embarrassing. My, my idea of making music is unrealistic. I want to make music and then somehow be able to pay the bills with it, right? But the whole the commercial aspect of it, to me, it took... 10 years to, to, to convince me. He's like, look, that is part of the job. That's part of what you do is you sell stuff. And to me, I was like, no, God, no. I'm a nurse. I don't sell things. You know, <laughs> Sell? So, what a bad word. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think I'm actually kind of good at it, but, uh, but, but I don't, that's not my, you know, to me, music is magic. Mm -hmm. and, and sales, there's nothing about sales feels like magic to me. Yeah, yeah. Here's another song from the Mountain Goats album, In League with Dragons, live at Talia Hall on Sound Opinions. This is a song about a guy in the middle of Iowa uh, watching Waylon Jennings play a show. And he's, yeah, and Waylon's real great, but this guy knows that his luck is about to run out. Uh, it's called Waylon Jennings Live. Drunk at the Meskwaki Casino Right where God intended me to be Looking up at the one man in this room Who's handled more cocaine than me Think back on the good times just an hour or so ago Before I got myself this drunk When the valet parked my rented Mitsubishi with a beat-up old brown suitcase in the trunk Full of firearms and flash drives Full of passports And international money orders For just in case I make it cross the border Get a postcard from the gift shop Let my family know I'm doing fine Looking up at a map up on the ceiling To find the place where we all meet up Further on down the line Head back to my table Get another scotch and soda for the room The band on stage is really working up ahead of steam Close my eyes and lean my head back Dream a little dream Full of fire Firearms And flash drives Full of passports And international money orders For just in case I make it cross the border
right, we're the Mountain Goats. That was Waylon Jennings Live by the Mountain Goats, live on Sound Opinions. What's the difference between the storytelling in songs like the new album? Because it's intense. I mean, there are characters and there are tales in League with Dragons, and the storytelling you do for your novels. So a novel is, I, I often draw this analogy, with a novel you're building a house, right? And, and you're building a house that would, and, and then following it from its construction on an empty lot to a place where people live, and then maybe some people move out and the house has a character and it has a neighborhood and it's, you know, it's very, very complicated. Songs are complex in a different way. But with a song, a song is, is very, it is a poem. A song is the original form of poetry. You come in, you do a thing. My love is like a powder keg. You say one thing. Maybe there's other, a lot of little patterns, like, like other fish in it. My love is like a powder keg in the corner of an empty warehouse somewhere just outside of town about to burn down but for the main thing a song is a single fish swimming toward the camera lens so you get a good look at him before he darts out of view when the last cymbal splash happens right and uh and so that's the thing is you're focusing and it's much more i'm drawing this analogy constantly but if you play magic the gathering when you design <laughs> when, you when you design a deck, a good deck is very synergistic and it tries to do one or two things. And when you're really bad at making decks, you keep you look at all these cards that do different things. Oh, I gotta have that guy. And that deck's a mess. Yeah. But if you put in four of every card you like, right, then you're likely to see the cards that you want to use and you can do a single, maybe two or three things max, right? That's what a song wants to do. You don't modulate from major to minor to major again and back to minor, unless you're yes or something, right? But for the most part, in the types of songs I'm, I like to write, you pick a key, if you mod, you do it once and you make it count, you know, which I, last album I was really super interested in modulations. But yeah, I mean, a song is, a, is an encounter. A book is a place you live in, right? It's not an encounter, it's a series of encounters that well, develop and grow. You were short-selling songs there, but you're forgetting all the other information that comes. Well, I don't consider that a short-selling. I mean, I think, okay. I, I think uh, you know, it's, it's a, a song, it's, it's just that they're different. We're saying a book is bigger, bigger isn't better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a song is considerably more potent, right? It's like it's a song reaches you, one, it's music, there is no substitute. It is the highest form of human expression, mm. right? I love books, I love literature, and it's very much, at the, but, but music, it's both the primal thing, it's the first thing we do when we're born, yeah. you know? And it's the thing that's there. Who, who reaches for a book when your heart shatters into a million pieces? Unless it's the Bible, you don't grab a book. Or maybe you yeah. grab Yeats. Yeats is like the exception here, but, <laughs> but I mean, because I know exactly what poem by Yeats I reach for if I'm suffering, but, uh, but other than that, I mean, what do you do? The first thing we think, it's like that cliched Elton John song, that sad song, Say So Much. Well, that's a corny-ass song, but he's dead right. It's like you, you go and you listen to Tommy James and the Shondells and you disappear into sound, and there's nothing... Sound, it's incomprehensibly great. It's like it is the reward for being on this planet. I'm in the living room watching the Watergate hearings while my stepfather yells at my mother. Launches a glass across the room, straight at her head, and I dash upstairs to take cover, lean in close to my little record player on the floor. So this is what the volume knob's for. I listen to dance music, 
dance music. You have made the case in the past that poems are songs. Yes, and I, and I, I hold to that. You are, you are unique in that regard because there's usually a separation of church and state when a lot of songwriters talk, no, there's no way, lyrics, I'm thinking totally in a different mindset, even if they write poems. Your first songs were poems. That's that right. You, you put, put into music. When you're writing a poem, do you think this could be a song or it could be just a poem? Or? I don't really write poems anymore. Yeah. I rarely do. And when I try, I think, well, you haven't been practicing that discipline for a number of years now and you're not very good at it anymore, you know, uh, if I ever was much good at it in the first place. But I mean, poetry these days, most of the people who read poetry are themselves poets, right? Uh, and, and it's being written for a very specific audience, right? And that's fine, but music is public. You don't have to be able to play a note to, to hear and feel and get music. You don't have to know any of what, you know, what, what a band is doing at all. We'll hear more from the Mountain Ghosts when we return, including how it changed from a solo project into a full-fledged band. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and we are in the middle of our session with the Mountain Goats. We're talking with songwriter and singer John Darneal and drummer John Worcester, and Greg asked how they started making music together. So we started, our first drums were on Tallahassee. Well, no, I guess I had some of the corners gambit. Stand up straight, you can see the house leaning. Day breaking, spring cleaning. And then I was sort of on my own for a while, and I, when we got signed to 4AD, I called Peter to see if he wanted to, to come back out and sort of maybe get revenge for the bad tour that we had had in 95. We, had, we did two tours. One was Triumphant, and one was a Catastrophe. He played drums on one song on Tallahassee. I was driving up from Tampa when the radiator burst. I was three sheets to the wind. A civilian saw me first. And then there was the cop. And then the children standing on the and we started borrowing the opening band's drummer to conclude the set. Hey, yeah, you want to do this? Pretty easy song. It's the Mountain Ghost. There's not much to it. You go bump, 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 bump. And so, um, and then we did uh, for the next album. We we hired a session drummer, Christopher McGuire from Twelve Rods. And uh, next time, John Vanderslice brought in Alex DeCarville to play on. So we had we were sort of playing with drums. I mean, I'm never in a big hurry to make a big change. But then I moved to Durham, and we're just in the same social circles. This was before I was a dad. I now no longer have social circles. Yeah. When I had a social life, we would hang out, and we would talk, and especially it turns out that John and I have a, a strong shared love of rock history and rock trivia, and sort of especially where are they now stuff with, with 70s bands. Like, I'm obsessed with Robin Trower, right, who is making some of the best records of his career right now, by the way. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, I, we got together, and I think I got asked to play a Christmas thing. And I called John, and I said, I don't want to do this by myself. You want to play this thing? So we played a Robert Earl Keane song. We played a Chuck Berry song. And that was great. And then we played, Super Chunk was playing the 10th year anniversary party for The Daily Show at Irving Plaza. And, right. and With Ma the upper crust. Yep, upper crust. And the Mountain Goats were on. And you, you asked me if I would sit in for a couple songs. Yes, yes. And I did, and it was great. And then the next thing I knew, we were in Anchorage, Alaska. That was our first get together. <laughs> the, yeah. the first date of a tour. Nobody tours to Alaska. We went there twice. We went, we went to Anchorage twice. It was awesome. It was minus 40. <laughs> and you're wondering about the balance sheet at the end of these tours. That's I'm right. telling you. Back then, the, like, I was still in, you know, 
they're going to pull the plug on this any minute now, and I'm going back to my day job. Like, there's this legendary... When the Sunset Tree came out, I had 4AD print 1,000 copies of the demos, right, for me to hand decorate the sleeves. And the reason I had this idea was, like, there's no way they're going to renew my contract. Mountain Ghost Records don't sell, you know. And, uh, and so I will want some handmade stuff for when I'm back to touring during my vacation from work. I broke free on a Saturday morning. I put the pedal to the floor. Headed north on Mills Avenue. And listen to the engine roar. I'm still trying to finish those uh, because as it turned <laughs> out, this became the job. But yeah, but you know, the Anchorage show, I feel like we wouldn't have gone if the guarantee hadn't been enough at least to offset the flights. Here's a song that showcases the whole band. Matt Douglas on keyboards, Peter Hughes on bass, John Worcester on drums, and John Darniel on guitar and vocals. It's the Mountain Goats live on Sound Opinions. Yes, letter from Belgium, from the seminal indie rock album, We Shall All Be Healed, by the Mountain Goats.
That was Letter from Belgium by the Mountain Goats from their 2004 album, We Shall All Be Healed, live on Sound Opinions. Speaking of music history, I have to say that I was introduced to your work through your writing, primarily through your writing about metal music. Um, your 33 and a third book on Black Sabbath uh, was brilliant. It was it's still you. the only fiction book in the entire series, I believe. Is that true? Right? I, I, I don't think there's another fictional awesome. 33 and a third. And then your late lamented webzine, uh, oh, yeah. Last Plane to Jakarta, is full of criticism that I took to heart. Like, uh, you wrote a very impassioned peon to metal bands, Dear Power Metal Bands. It's important to use real pianos. <laughs> and meanwhile, tell your vocalists who think we don't notice little auto-tune fixes that I will have words for them in hell. <laughs> and last but not least, I owe you for pointing me in the direction of a German metal band named Blind Guardian. Oh, so great, Blind Guardian. <laughs> It's just a font of metal trivia and knowledge, and you know there are echoes of it on the album cover, the, the yeah. latest album cover, etc. Where did that start? Why does it continue? How does it inform your music? So the first time I became exposed to the term heavy metal was uh, a KTEL, I think, compilation called Heavy Metal that had almost no heavy metal on it, but it did have Iron Man by Black Sabbath, uh, and I couldn't understand it. I was 12. And I, you guys were probably like me in the late 70s. If you got a record that you were interested in, you sit there and listen to it and look at the sleeve and try and figure out where they're coming from. What are they getting out of this? Am I, am I hearing this the same way that they do? Does that question even matter? You know, and like Iron Man was so puzzling a song to me. It was so different. I mean, everything else is love songs for the most part. Yeah. Whatever it is, you know, it's a love song or a story song. And Iron Man is this weird thing, you know, with that incomprehensible intro. And I was scared by it, and I didn't pursue it. But it has always been my thing that stuff that scares me or that I'm afraid to pursue, there's an attraction there, and I come back to it. And then I became a sort of very pretentious 14-year-old into Lou Reed and David Bowie, and all my friends would cap on Ozzy. But I had been hanging out with some Heshers because I smoked cigarettes, and they all thought Ozzy's, the Blizzard of Oz was the greatest thing ever to have happened to the world. So I joined the Columbia Record Club, and I got Blizzard of Oz. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't think it was as great as they did, because it does run out of steam, that record. Uh, yeah. But I got into it, and then I was, I, mean, I was alive when Iron Maiden was in their absolute glory days, and that Number of the Beast was coming out in peace of mind. Seriously and, underrated band. By a galloping by, rhythm. The, Steve Harris, one of the absolute greatest of all time. That sequence of records, um, uh, what is it? Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind, is Power Slave next? Well, they were self-titled first. Yes. <laughs> oh, it? Paul Deano, Paul Deano, the original man, vocalist. Yeah. It was great. He had short hair. Right. Very unusual. That's right. So, and then, then Killers, right? Killers. And then, then he's gone. Bruce Dickinson. Bruce Dickinson comes in. Comes in. Uh, long confused by that Saturday Night Live sketch where they have Bruce Dickinson producing the Blue Oyster Cult. Bothers me every day. Um, <laughs> My name is Bruce Dickinson. Yes, the Bruce Dickinson. And I gotta tell you, fellas, you have got what appears to be a dynamite sound. Coming from you, Bruce, that means a lot. 
we're talking about the more cowbell yeah. thing. I think they went to a reissue. There's a guy named Bruce Dickinson who did reissues. He produced right. the reissues. Yes, yes, Had yes. Had they done their homework, they would have Man. known that it was Shelley Yakis uh. and Sandy Perlman. And this is why John Worcester and I have, like, it was destiny that we'd be in the same True. band. Because I know that he was as bothered the second he heard that as I was. And I was like, Bruce Dickinson is the singer for Iron Maiden. You morons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have yet to mention the whole Dungeons and Dragons role-playing magic. The Gathering was yeah, yeah. mentioned several times. All right. First, so, let me say, until a month ago, I thought Magic the Gathering was a play. <laughs> <laughs> From whence does this come, Mr. Darniel? So, um, I was a big science fiction fan when I was 12. I was going to conventions. I was collecting paperbacks. I was a member of the Harlan Ellison Record Collection, uh, <laughs> where Harlan would read stories on vinyl. He was a major huckster and totally great. And, yeah, I was super into that stuff. And then in seventh grade... There was a D&D &D club, so I signed up. Our party was immediately attacked by a ghost. And I said, uh, well, I want to swing my sword at him. And the DM said, well, no, it, it, nobody here has the power to, to fight a ghost. We should flee or you'll be hurt. And I said, this is foolishness. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't play again for years. But every cultural scene I'd be in was kind of adjacent to that. Are you interested that there's this resurgence? Because Stranger Things yeah. is based around that. And I don't know, the guy in my band has a, a son who's freshman in high school. And they have a D&D &D circle. Oh, it's huge right now. Magic is a big part of that. Magic is worldwide. Yeah. It's easier to learn. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not as big of a time commitment. But not as challenging. Well, I don't... It, <laughs> oh, no. The nature of the challenge is different. The tabletop games I play are mainly not D&D based because it's still a very mechanical game. Like, it's mm -hmm. not... You don't have to be into storytelling to do D&D. You just have to want to kick some ass, right? Whereas I play games that are a collaborative storytelling with a guy named Jason Morningstar who designs these games that... Uh, that are more about hard choices and storytelling and role-playing. All right. Here's a song from the Mountain Goats. It's Sicilian Crest, live on Sound Opinions. Kitchen rag and heretics blood. Wash your windows and prepare for the flood. Look to the west. Look to the man. Bearing the Sicilian crest. Say that the time is near Dial into the signal It's coming in loud and clear 
Sacrificial victims out of the cage Smiling as they're taking the stage Lord to the wax Look to the man Bearing the Sicilian crest Blue. Everything's new. All the talk we heard was true. The legends we all heard once. The whispers from the storefronts. That was Sicilian Crest from the Mountain Goats album In League with Dragons, live from Talia Hall in Chicago on Sound Opinions. That wraps up our conversation with the Mountain Goats. Special thanks this week to Shelly Steffens, Goose Island Beer Company, and everyone at Talia Hall for that session with the Mountain Goats. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to highlight some of our favorite songs that feature great cameos. As always, you can get more of Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcast thingies. As always, the show is produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and the Mountain Goats loving Andrew Gill. Bring, do you hear me calling?
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. My name is Eli. I live in Crestone, Colorado. I'm calling because I just listened to the show about Robert Johnson, which I enjoyed very much. You asked, what's our favorite Robert Johnson cover? The one I wanted to mention was Rory Block. She's a great acoustic blues player. And on her album called Mama's Blues, the first cut on there is Terraplane Blues. And it's just a really cool version. Thought I feel so lonesome. I can't even Thought I feel so lonesome. I can't even Been driving my terraplane for you since I've been gone. She makes that song really sexual. Like it's all about a frustrated woman. Um, and she wants to not be frustrated. And also, just musically, the guitar playing, she changes up the rhythm, the time signature. Goes back and forth in a couple different different ways of uh, approaching the song. It's, and it works really well. So anyway, she's, I think she's kind of underrated. I don't know what she's doing these days, but one of the most unique takes on the Robert Johnson tune. So that's my opinion. Hi, my name is Roger. I'm from Chicago. I, I really like your Robert Johnson, so they have to suggest another cover version for Robert Johnson tunes. Really the most, one of the most iconic versions of any of his songs is, was one by Magic Sam, who covered Sweet Home Chicago. He really nailed it. And much like, uh, much like Robert Johnson, he died way too early. That's all. This is Ray Carl from Chicago. I love the show. You know, talking about Robert Johnson, one of the best versions of a Robert Johnson song I remember was done by the obscure English band called Backdoor back in the 70s. They were kind of touted as the new cream, but their lineup of saxophone, bass, and drums didn't really do it. So they do an excellent version of Walking Blues, and uh, Colin Hodgkinson plays the bass. He was such a great bass player. Okay, thanks a lot. Have a good one. Bye bye. Got up this morning, baby, looking around for my shoes. Everybody, I got these. Greg, this is Fred from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm sure you've heard, but I just want to call and make note of the passing of Damien Lovelock, who was the singer for the Celibate Rifles, a terrific Australian band. Got their start in the early 80s. Unfortunately, I only got to see them one time. They toured 
the U.S. back in the late 80s. I still have my Roman Beach Party T-shirt, but uh, they kind of fit into your themes from the past couple of weeks of the Ramones and also the Wawa pedal. They were obviously big fans of the Ramones, and a lot of their songs are drenched in the Wawa, especially songs like uh, The God Squad or Jesus on TV. So enjoy the show. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Bye. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.